0: This has been a tragic week. Larry Bristow is gone. Alexander Belanger has headed out. Today, we mark the passing of these two men.
1: Hello and welcome to Pale Reflections, a proud member of the Doof Network where we reflect on Wabo's most scholastic work as
0: it releases. I'm Ruben Morehouse. And I'm Elliot Diebold.
1: Ah, and they're dead, Elliot. The conflict is over. They're both dead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, and our holiday schedule is over. The three big conflicts. The three in big our lives. conflicts
1: are all dead. <laughs> Thank God for that. Um but we will talk about the death of Bristow and Alex uh, oh, so shortly. To be fair,
0: I don't think Bristow's dead yet.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I Optionally. hope for his
0: sake that he is, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just just a little semantic correction. Yeah,
1: no, of course. And that's always valid when we're discussing this story. Um, <laughs> let's get into it, shall we? Uh, yeah. We're talking about Gone Ahead 7.9, 7.x. Uh, no bonus material this week but we'll dive into some predictions a discussion question and um, a little bit of a bonus so let's start with 7.9 which is in Avery's perspective Um, and we uh, have Avery and Jessica kind of regrouping and recuperating before the final conflict kicks off yeah Um, I think something I I noticed on my second read of this is that this first part of the chapter has two really fun interactions that are along the same lines. And it made me think that there may be a trend emerging. So first of all, Jessica reveals that she's turned herself into a kind of Tim Tam genie, but with protein bars,
0: right. Um, where she has an Ruben unlimited... White, how many people do you think are, on a, are going to understand that reference?
1: I mean, specifically people <laughs> our age growing up in Australia in like the nineties, the early nineties, right. <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh shit! No, they they redid the ad. Okay, hold on. I'm they? googling the Tim Tam Genie. Yeah, in 2020. Wow. Huh.
0: Well, look for those who might need it. The Tim Tam Genie is an ad thing for Tim Tams, and <laughs> he gives you unlimited Tim Tam. Like well, he gives you a packet of Tim Tams with unlimited Tim Tams. The, and the joke, the is, ad is always a joke that one yeah. of your three wishes should be that you want unlimited Tim Tams.
1: Yeah. Someone someone's a genie, and they're like what what do you wish for?" and then they have an unlimited <laughs> packet of gymnass, which is a pretty good song. pretty good yeah pretty good song. it's not um, wrong either It's up there with not happy Jan in terms of iconic Australian television ads, <laughs> I think um you know okay <laughs> before I get into this pale shit, come on, um I was talking to somebody who uh is two years younger than me. And this is so funny. They know the phrase not happy Jan, but they just they don't know where it comes from, um, which for those of you who aren't Australians, you might not know the phrase not happy Jan, which is a phrase that you say just to kind of express your unhappiness with something, right? Like if something yeah. happens that you're not okay with, you say, not happy Jan, like that. Um, it's a classic. And it comes from, as most good Australian phrases do. A television advert for the yellow pages, I think, or white pages, or something.
0: Yeah, it was. Look at like that; yeah um
1: Anyway, now that all that cool chit chat is over, shall we talk about pale?
0: <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> I mean, so Jessica I'm not the one who stopped. <laughs> okay, all right
1: So Jessica reveals she's turned herself into a Tim Tam genie, but for protein bars, and then also Snowdrop is a Tim Tam genie, but for t-shirts, right? um And they both kind of use their genie powers to give Avery protein bars and T-shirts, respectively. And it's just interesting to me that, that two of these people that Avery really cares about and surrounds herself with both have like a an infinite supply of something. And I don't know what it means or if, if it is meant to mean anything, but I just kind of wonder why that connection exists and whether it is implying that maybe Avery will herself become a Tim Tam genie for something useful in the future. <laughs>
0: Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I like that last point of uh, trying to tinfoil it into Avery getting the power. Yeah. Um,
1: what would it be though? I don't know. P- leave your answers in the discussion thread. What do you think <laughs> Avery should become a Tim Tam genie for?
0: Um, I, I mean, I sort of saw this as just a bit of a metaphor for how like effortless giving support like this is like, you know, like, like this is an Avery chapter and of course we open it but she's literally surrounded by people who are like helping and supporting her they're able to give her things that literally cost them nothing. um, Like, it's it's such a brilliant sort of metaphor for just the way mm. Avery, or what Avery needs, or what she's blind to. Like, you know, I don't think there's at any point Avery fully appreciates how this is, like, exactly what she wants all the time, and now she has it. And instead she just gets kind of flushed because she's living that, like, wounded soldier uh, trope, but, you know, with Jess taking care of her.
1: So Avery is a Tim Tam genie for being friendly and
0: kind is what you're saying yeah no she's the tim tam genie who makes other tim tam genies oh i see
1: okay i like
0: it <laughs> um but yeah i no, like i i just i just loved the way this chapter just opens so, like avery being supported by people that she has you know reached out to like, like jessica like snowdrop yeah. like it, it's it's the people in her life giving her help for free and it's just like like. Avery, can't you see? You already have what you want. You're just framing it through this need for it to be some sort of romantic relationship or something. Mm. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, I also love that Jessica's raincoat gives her chocolate like bars. Like there's like protein bars and chocolate bars as well. But like, I think that's so perfect because if you think about like being in the ruins, she talks about how she needed things that let her stay in the ruins for longer. And I bet you it's not as much that she needs like the fuel, the the food, the protein. I'm sure that's like a part of it, but I, I imagine the fact that they're like chocolate flavor is is also important because it's like that, mm. like you know, endorphin hit you get from like the sugary and the sweetness. Like it would cheer you up, and and the ruins were all about like draining you emotionally.
1: What was it? What was the the story? I'm trying to think. I know there's a, some kind of science fiction or fantasy story where chocolate is like a a useful tool for like bringing people back to themselves. Uh, it, maybe it's in his Dark Materials, actually. Does that sound real, right to you? Anyway, but, yeah, the, the vibe thing you're of, saying
0: like... saying is very familiar, where it was like, oh, shit, what is it? They use chocolate. No, fuck, you're maybe right. Maybe a Terry
1: something. Pratchett or something? I, I don't know.
0: Hmm.
1: Anyway, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's that kind of same vibe to me of, like, chocolate as this thing that is just, like, <laughs> universally beloved and helps keep you you, you know? Eating chocolate brings yeah. you back to yourself.
0: Like I'm just thinking, you know, like uh, Jessica could have found the ability to fill her raincoat with like protein shakes or something, like you know, or, <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly, like, so- something that is like everything she needs nutritionally but brings her no joy. And I think that yeah. wouldn't be as effective in the ruins because in the ruins yeah. you need something to cheer you up as much as yeah. you need, like yeah, like you know, physical sustenance. Exactly right. Um, yeah, it's good and, and, stuff. and it's so it's so. Uh Jessica, as well, because you know underneath the outer surface of the raincoat that repels water, there's nice chocolate underneath, like you know she's a nice, sweet person yeah just, just gonna bar, get, yeah. You just, you just gotta get through this outer layer of water repellent material,
1: <laughs> a perfect metaphor
0: <laughs> um th- there's also this great moment where uh Jessica sort of says to Avery, uh you know it's really like feeling at home." is really helpful for healing the self like you after a big stint in the ruins like you just had you do need a sense of like feeling at home and then snowdrop says something with her mouth full tells her to chew then talk you savage uh and snowdrop flips (laughs) her the middle finger yep and i think something that hadn't really clicked to me until we saw this is like i think we've talked about how like snowdrop's inversion of niceness is is particularly funny to bounce yeah. off Avery but like yeah this felt very big family to me like the idea that mm. you would lovingly flip someone off yeah like, like that's how Sheridan interacts with her right like we we sort of <laughs> had that moment with Sheridan where it was like Sheridan sort of was like oh you know it's been my weird way of trying to help you being a dick to you all the time and that like mm. that I mean, maybe it's just my family but that 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 was a very I was like oh that's kind of funny. no it and,
1: resonates to an extent doesn't it
0: That's so like yeah the idea that like yeah you know, Avery has to like yell at Snowdrop for chewing or talking with her mouthful, and then Snowdrop like lovingly flips her off. Like that felt very family to me. Hmm.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um. Yeah, it's a nice wholesome moment before we get into the uh the showdown, I guess. Um. The other thing that this chapter starts to set up is obviously Jessica is being nice to Avery, and Avery is like surprised by this for an ex. You know, to to an example uh, to to an extent right um and obviously this is starting the thread of avery's kindness that she has displayed to characters who are neutral or even enemies uh coming back to pay off in big ways um yeah we will continue to see that throughout the entirety of this chapter
0: yeah yeah exactly like I, and you know that's why this is an avery chapter um but yeah i just i, I, I the fact that jessica has suddenly become so like kind towards her it just really lands. I think we talked about this last week already as well, but it just lands because Jess has been so. I mean, there's that moment where Jess, Jess is like, "Oh, was I mean before?" Like she just doesn't, just, just, just clearly doesn't sort of realize how brisk she is with people, like by default. But like you know, it it lands how caring she's being here because of how um prickly she was at the start. Mm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um. It really. I mean, you know, Jessica was so actively prickly. And so seeing her turn around, it's, yeah, just a great example of of this paying off.
0: I seriously hope there's a one po- at least one point in arc eight where Avery does take that second to appreciate what she had in these moments, because this is the start of the chapter. Again, I, I know I've said this already, but Avery, this is exactly what you keep complaining that you don't have, but right now you yeah. have it. Please tell me you see that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um so yeah we should
1: also touch on Avery and Snow's relationship right um which is it feels very mature in a way that they both kind of recognize that they're different people and they won't necessarily be like twins and that's okay they can still communicate and grow in different directions as long as they're open and and, you know kind about it right um yeah yeah
0: uh, yeah, I think we've talked about this sort of stuff in uh, the context of Lucy and Verona as well. That's sort of like when you have a real close childhood friend, like it's it's normal if you grow apart. That doesn't mean you have to stop being completely, like, completely stop being friends. It doesn't mean you have to, you know, force yourself to stay best friends. And I, I love how uh, Avery just puts this emphasis on like current Snowdrop just staying in communication and making sure, you know, they are doing their best for each other even if they're growing apart like that doesn't really matter like i I love that that little message and especially i think avery is someone who needs this like i think like a huge part of of avery's problems is the way olivia cut off their friendship it has left Avery Mm. pretty scarred and i think avery does need to experience the normal way of growing apart from a friend (laughs) as opposed to Mm. the 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 way olivia did it
1: Mm. yeah yeah um yeah uh so verona as a representative of the plot, comes in and says, no, 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 no more <laughs> sitting around and relaxing. Time to get this show on the road. Uh, and uh, tells Avery that Bristow is coming and they need to run away while they finalise the details of their plan. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um. Yes. And, and so we quickly transition from the everyone is supporting Avery section of the chapter to the everyone is shooting down all of Verona's ideas section, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is... It, <laughs> it's a very funny but frustrating part three because you see verona's like i have four plans and we just sort of start going through them it's like no 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 and you can see verona getting way 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 frustrated as it keeps going on um yeah
1: <laughs> i feel a bit bad for her but um i mean we've been talking about how they haven't had a plan and verona's been making these big bold statements without having a plan and so i think it's fair enough that People might get a little bit upset at her for being like, yeah, we're going to beat you three times, Bristow. And uh, we haven't even really got one properly lined up. <laughs>
2: um,
1: the stuff that Verona has got is uh, uh, Bristow's word, uh, his building on campus, his aware, and the students. So these are the th- they need to challenge three of these four things. Challenging Bristow on his word was done at the end of the last chapter, so that's kind of a mm-hmm. thumbs up to that, I suppose. Uh, his building on campus is aware and the students all seem, I mean, his building on campus and his aware both seem the most unassailable, right? Um, Yeah. As soon as she races those, uh, first it's, I think, John and then Zed shoot them down, respectively. Um, The students is the only one that they have, and so they go ahead with that as the only one they really can do.
0: Yeah, and then obviously we all know where where it ends up, um, but I, I thought it was funny that the building is the one they don't end up doing because it's like, you know, As Verona says later, Bristow's about people, and that's what he can't handle, or, or, you know, that's what he isn't actually taking care of. Mm. Um, So, like, you know, taking his building would have felt the weakest to me because it's like, it's under construction anyway. It's like, who cares? Like, he'll build another one. Um, Taking the people away from him feels weightier, and I'm glad that that's the direction they managed to go in.
1: Um, Yeah, for sure. Like, it wouldn't have had the same punch if it was just, and now we're going to take down your building, Bristow. (laughs) Like, it's not, we don't care about that to the same extent, right? Yeah. Um, So, yeah, they go ahead with their plan to turn students. uh, Basically, Georgia volunteers to help incapacitate everybody, and then from there they hope to have Alpi visit their dreams to kind of do the final convincing for people to switch switch sides. Um, The plan goes into motion. Georgia drops some sleepy pills, and everyone takes a brief mid-battle nap.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, this is very fun. Like, George is sort of going out there and screaming, like, down a downpour and tranquilizing truce as she summons this, like, giant monster of a woman at a rave party. Um, it was simultaneously, like, the dorkiest and coolest thing ever. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, for sure. I love how there are, of course, characters that in-universe kind of behave like they're protagonists in shonen anime, right? Um, it just works so well. Like, of course you would. Yeah is that what it's called shonen shonen anime shonen manga oh. like uh you know those kinds of manga where the protagonists have special moves that they shout when they uh perform them you know what i mean
0: i i didn't know there was a word for that but like it's it like does seem to naruto
1: and and dragon ball z and and uh fucking the pirate one what's that called one piece etc okay anyway <laughs> <laughs> anyway keep us on track um so yeah uh everyone starts to fall asleep uh Actually, sorry, before we get to that, I I want to touch on something else first, which is, I mean, we've talked about how Verona doesn't fully have a plan. And it seems like even the plans they do have, we don't fully understand, right? Like we lead out into this student knockout plan. And the most that is said about it is Lucy saying, knock them out, set them up, hope for two out of the three as they come to, which is, I guess, explaining what they're doing kind of, but never really mentions Alpi, doesn't mention a few of the key integral pieces to this plan. Um, And we can put it together. But I think it's fun that because they're being spied on a lot, they're being very defensive of the details of their plan. And so even we as the audience don't necessarily get all the pieces we need to see what's going to happen before it happens. It's just like text and meta text, again, playing together well in the story.
0: It, yeah, because, I mean, it is, it is more fun for us if we're sort of, you know, seeing the plan as it unfolds. So any excuse a story like this can have for keeping it from us uh, is, is very fun yeah i I do though here get the sense that there wasn't a super concrete plan beyond yeah like okay you know we've identified those students and uh the plan is we put everyone to sleep and then Alpi goes off and we try to help her find them and we hope that we can like you know it's not it isn't like a super concrete plan it is just kind of a well we got a vague idea let's go try and do it
2: Mm.
1: yeah yeah um So the vague idea is knocking out all the students, trying to convince some of them to switch sides by the time they wake up with Alpi's uh, dream magic, right? Um, Hmm. But, of course, the side effect of this is everyone gets knocked out and has some dreams, including Avery, uh, who goes to sleep and has a horrible nightmare.
0: Just because guess who's back?
1: Yes. Um, It's horrifying, right? And I think the thing (laughs) that is the most horrifying uh, to me about it is – We don't know how true it is, right? Like, so her nightmare is the wolf basically talking to her about how I am right here and I am waiting to come for you, you know. Um, And it could just be Avery's fear manifesting in a traditional nightmare, and it could be Avery's dream actually connecting to the path and potentially giving the wolf an avenue to escape. Like, could be either. And it is scary how real it could be i hope we never find out (laughs) i
0: i I get the impression that what the wolf is trying to say here is that it's both Mm. um like i sort of took this whole speech the wolf gives as evidence for my theory that like the realms or or the paths in particular are like manifestations of sort of selective uh, sorry of collective subconscious um and and so it's like you know avery dreaming of the wolf and thinking about the wolf dwelling on it, carrying it her with her, like that makes it the wolf like like that's mm. sort of what this world mm. is is like mm. what people put effort and faith and and thought into sort of becomes real so Avery being scarred by the wolf, carrying it with her as she's like a vegetarian now, and stuff, like is actually giving the wolf power and making it a bit real, so it's like you know the mm. it, is it just a dream Avery's having or is it the wolf like I think the answer is like yes it's both like her, yeah. her carrying the, the wolf and dreaming about it makes it a little bit the wolf and powers the wolf a little bit and I think like the paths are just yeah these spaces like finders get perks for basically going and helping empower these spaces by visiting them and, and bringing those stories back mm. um, but yeah and, and but that then leads to the question is like uh, sh- should we be scared then about like the fact that the wolf has left such a mark on Avery and uh, is still so connected to her
1: I mean yes we should be worried about that right like that link being exploitable is a terror terrifying fear um mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean we're kind of setting up for the end game of this story right like i don't know i'm nervous to see what old foes will return to be finally <laughs> tied up you know
0: Wonder if they could convince the wolf to be an ally. The Carmine Wolf, A- perhaps. A- Avery's Avery's <laughs> ultimate outreach challenge is getting the yeah. wolf on side. Turn the wolf
1: nice, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> um so yeah, uh the team all wakes up. A Avery is kind of rescued from this nightmare by Alpi. Um uh the team wakes up and Verona kind of sets up for her showdown with Bristow. They start trading words.
0: Yeah, but we, we kinda leave that quite quickly because we're gonna follow Avery. Um, and, and I was like, I was actually surprisingly fine with that. Like, usually you'd hate missing the actual confrontation against the big bad, but like we see a bit of the end of it later with Verona and Bristow, and it's just it—it's frustrating to read because it's all just like grabbing for coup and claim over these bullshit semantics. Like, it's just like, mm. no, you said a weak thing, and then Bristow would be like, no, your words are shallow or something. And I said, oh my god, I hate this. Like um so i i I love that we like sort of leave verona and bristow to that because i know it's central and important but like it's it's actually swinging the people that is the important part and that's the part that we get to focus on yeah yeah definitely um yeah i agree with you uh
1: good moment here uh the the t-shirt moment uh, so Avery <laughs> has been not understanding this t-shirt and that's been a beat throughout the first half of this chapter. And then Gashwad sees her and sniggers and she says, what the shirt Gashwad raised his voice before laughing, which is just a great <laughs> moment, right? Like this is perfect. <laughs> um, I pull, I want to pull out a comment from knowledge nomad, which is a very apt to name who has given an explanation about what this shirt might be referencing. So to, to remind you all it's uh, Shirt with a possum on it, and she's kind of covering her nose, her nostrils, kind of salaciously while winking. And the shirt, I think, says, my my eyes are over here or something like that. Is that right?
0: Um, yeah, something like that. It's just ashamed of its nose was really the big takeaway I took.
1: But in a flirtatious way, right, yeah, is what I yeah, thought yeah. about. Um, and so the explanation for the shirt is from Knowledge Nomad. I think it's a joke about a misconception about how possums breed. From LiveScience.com, males have forked penises. It was once thought that the reason for this physical feature was that they bred with the female's nose. It was thought that once the babies were born, the mother would sneeze the babies into her pouch. This isn't true, blah, blah, blah. And so that's why she's kind of like covering her nose uh, flirtatiously. (laughs) Which is just, I mean, it's so great that it's such (laughs) a specific reference to a misconception about possum... uh, you know possum breeding mating habits that, of course, <laughs> the goblins would understand.
0: <laughs> I just love that in real life someone saw that the males had forked penises and decided, "Yep, they must do it through the nose." <laughs> that, well, that's I think the only was... thing that makes sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure there was some reason for it, but God knows. No, I, no you maybe it started just... as a joke.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, um, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, yeah, no, I I like I like how this goes unexplained though in the chapter, like because like about halfway through the chapter, I just had to Google it because I was like, okay, I'm not getting this, but like, I think it's fun how Wabo leaves it as an exercise for the reader because we kind of get not only the hilarity of, of the joke itself, like of the shirt, but there's like this second joke which is Avery's growing frustration with no one explaining it to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you sort of you you get a whole extra joke out of the premise by not explaining it like this.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's so good. (laughs) Ah, Good times. Um, So, yeah, Alpi is kind of doing her thing, uh, but as this is going on, Ray shows up, forcing Alpi to kind of lay low a little bit. Um,
0: Yeah, and and so I can't believe it took until Avery and Ray were in the same room before I finally realized, like, why Ray suddenly showed up and and became important. We should clarify, this
1: is Ray R-A-E, not Radical Ray.
0: (laughs) uh yeah female ray um like she because she's someone who's so incredibly defined by this relationship that it's subsumed her and become to define her and like yeah i i just couldn't believe that it was until they were like directly opposite each other that i was like oh of course she's like a potential future for avery if avery goes down a bad path like Mm. like you know this is this is the universe sort of shoving it in avery's face it's like you know this is what you could become if you insist on like finding some romantic relationship and f- trying to make it work um and yeah like i there's even that moment where avery has to sort of recognize that she can't help or save ray like she's covered in the handprints in a way that kind of cordon her off from any practice mm. um and it, it reminded me of like after the wolf in her dream before like way back in the forest ribbon trail avery learned that she can't save everyone but she has to still try to to do what she can um to you know still do other things and that's what we have to sort of do with Ray here avery has to be like well she's too far gone i can't really save her but i'm still gonna take her gun away before she can do more harm mm, yes
1: um what a what a fun little showdown right yeah um yeah it's classic it's just like the showdown because ray has been a character that has been there the whole time but hasn't mainly been in the foreground of conflict right um except with i guess Kevin's interlude was the most foreground that we got on ray um but she really is a great foil to have here because she's so uh she's so like stuck in her ways in the sen- in the same way that um yeah in the ways you've all been talking about right like Avery ray being a potentially bad feature for Avery being someone who has to be kind of accepted as willing to be let go it, Similar to the way all the ways that Shelley was such a fun antagonist, except not as horrifically annoying. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, well, she's more like she's sadder because I think the framing for Ray that that Avery does come up with is like you know she is a victim, mm. like in a way like, you know like Kevin yes. has you know, dragged her down here, Uh, but there's there's nothing Avery can do about it, and, and like uh, yeah, I, I guess that's the point. Avery is like you know if you end up in these situations like this other people aren't going to be able to help you you have to learn to help yeah. yourself and yeah. hopefully that's where ray killing kevin comes in
1: mm. yeah yeah
0: um yeah it's interesting i
1: mean avery is someone who will always kind of see the good in somebody right she will always try to do that she's she yeah. tried to do it even to shelly which is obviously <laughs> like by definition impossible um <laughs> So, yeah, I, I just think it's good that in, in a chapter that demonstrates how that will pay off and benefit Avery tangibly, it's good to also see some instances where that just won't be the answer.
0: Yeah, true, true. Um,
1: so, yeah, uh, in the chaos of this, uh, well, actually, I think this happened slightly before the chaos of this, but uh, it becomes apparent that Ted has taken Snowdrop's anti kev necklace uh, and snowdrop becomes subject to uh kevin's eye which makes all the audience very nervous very quickly
0: <laughs> oh man oh oh this part this this was a great moment i really enjoyed it i didn't fall for it or believe it was real at all mm. um yeah no, I, I, this was horrifying i was very bad uh by the end of it um it's worth it for the pay off at the end but like oh god i genuinely thought snowdrop was dying here and i was livid yeah yeah for sure
1: um it's there's the moment where we as the audience think snowdrop has been shot and oh my god wobbo <laughs> mean so mean
0: <laughs> i do think it's hilarious though that it's her like possum based f- death fakery that actually yeah. saves the day because kevin <laughs> thinks she is dead like you know That's how fundamental a level her ability to fake death works on. Yeah. It's just so good.
1: Such a powerful uh, move that it even works on Kevin. Um, Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Um, (laughs) uh, So, yeah, uh, using the distraction that has been caused by Snowdrop being dropped, uh, Avery is able to get the gun free of Ray and get away onto a roof. And then from the roof, Avery can kind of see the scraps and battles that are happening around the school um i thought this was really funny avery is talking about how slippery ray is and then kind of not commenting on the fact that she's able to quickly grab the gun and then just kind of scamper away up a roof in what is (laughs) undeniably a a very slippery act
0: yeah well i mean you know not giving herself enough credit is avery 101 um but yeah it's a good it's a good point uh she does really well here using like connection manipulating and stuff to grab this gun
1: yeah yeah she she does do well um yeah so uh Avery then is on the roof and she's kind of seeing what's going on and basically ends up playing a bit of spoiler here right she harasses the musses um so that Alpi has the opportunity to to do her you know conversions uh before then heading to interrupt chase but unfortunately she's not fast enough to get to chase and is caught by drown one of the familiars um with Avery trapped, with, with the battle kind of grinding to a halt here as the Kenneteers get caught, everyone starts to wake up and the BHI conflict begins to resolve.
0: I, I, I fucking love this scene of the resolution so much because mm. like, the text takes time to sort of draw out the battle lines. Like You've got Alex and students aligned with him on one side. You've got Bristow and students and people aligned with him on one side. And then you have Fernanda kind of standing in the middle And then the can of tears drop on the other side of the middle. And it it, like, you know, what I love about this is this is obviously how you would lay it out in a visual adaptation. Mm. But this universe is so fucking cool because it's like, it it matters in universe. Like this is just as important to the characters as it is to us. Like this is usually something we have to process like subconsciously, or if you're trying to be like a critic or something, you would notice the film director did it. Mm. Uh, But like, I love how it's like in universe. It matters when people like walk across the side in a very tangible way, and so just like the way this scene gets to very explicitly lay out where everyone's standing, and you know that that has tangible importance as well as working kind of dramatically. It's just so mm. fun.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, it it's good, isn't it? It's it's a very visual scene that, of course, would be how the how it would play out in this universe, because it's, you know, reasonably likely to just play out like that anyway, but of course it is able to, this universe can kind of take things like that and make them explicitly literal, which is great. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, it all starts to unfold. Uh, All the Kennetiers have really done, it seems, is to lift the veil from people's eyes, but that's enough to have them all questioning how bullshit everything is. Fernanda knows that it is bullshit that her friend has died, and neither Bristow nor Alexander seem to care about that at all. Uh, Cass knows how bullshit it all is, and Nicolette knows that it's bullshit to treat children like this, and decides to
0: defect. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, God, like this was, uh, this is so. Much, this whole part of the like this is where the chapter just turns into like fucking vindication to read. Like, it's just everything starts going well, and it's so satisfying. Um, I love how each of those three people you mentioned sort of reject Alexander and Bristow's attempts to like stop it. Like, you know, Bristow challenges Fernanda. Uh, as she sort of refuses to take his side by saying, Oh, your family's on the rise. And she's she sort of responds, she's like, Yeah, I know. And I know they're manipulating me. I'm a manipulator. Yeah. I get what they're doing. But like, fuck it. They're right. She died and it was on your watch and you haven't done fuck. And I was just like, Oh god, it's so good. Like, you know, Fernanda does have feelings for starters. Um, I was unsure by the end of 6.z whether she did. Um, mm like yeah it's so good watching each of these three like get challenged by alexander and bristow and then just sort of say yeah like i don't care about whether they're manipulating me or whatever like or if they started or whatever you've done fucking nothing to help and it's just like like that's exactly the point we've been making for so long yeah it feels so good to hear them say it yeah um Yeah, it's good, isn't it?
1: Uh, Until it seems like Bristow has lost, and so Alexander begins to step in, and it seems like Alexander's going to be the one who who will walk away with the victory. You know, Verona has made two strong plays against Bristow, enough to weaken him and lose his claim over the school, but not enough to take the victory themselves.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this is the one part of this chapter where it's like the second Bristow is on the back foot, Alexander starts piping up, and it was like, blood boiling for me i was like no you shut the fuck up (laughs) like um don't you dare take this and i'm so glad I i think it's lucy who's like no you don't get to take this and i was like oh thank god for lucy yeah
1: thank god for that yeah man um yeah so alex is positioning himself to take the victory but then avery kind of makes the next play she uh literally charges at alex and he's like what and then she steps neck behind him to get to Clem and takes Clem's hands and asks for help. And Clem acts in their favor. She steps up, she asks them to be heard, and she begins to uh do what she came here to do with with for Alexander, but uh for the Kenneteers, I guess, gives them yeah. the you know the credit, the credit. for it, which yeah. is so good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean it's amazing. Like again, this this whole segment, it's just all of the is like good work and, and like good work is in like, like good. Um, yes. Capital like G com- good. Yeah. Like coming to fruition. Um, yeah. And this last one is, is just the most fantastic because Alexander and Bristow fucking been cooing and claiming all over Clem, like, you know, doing all they can to like own her. But at the end of the day, she's a person and she sh- sides with the people who treated her like one And she has that great moment where she's like, they're fucking kids. Like, why is everyone being like this? Mm. And it was just like, it's just music to your ears. Just like, God, so many moments in the back half of this chapter where people just finally start acting like good, caring people. And it's just so satisfying. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it great? It's so good. It all just ties
1: together. The Kennedys being, as you said, capital G, good.
0: Um it just saves the day that's great yeah i like it just warms your heart reading the back half it does doesn't it yeah <laughs> like, it's just it's just it's very viscerally satisfying to see everybody else step up and take their side mm. um uh, uh on make another quick note i just wanted to mention as well i love how consistently great wild bowkey keeps being at like choosing which perspective we see a moment from like m- maybe sometimes it's a bit cause and effect like the the nature of a moment is shaped by which Kenneth the chapter ends up being through the perspective of but like in retrospect it's like you could pick how this climax was going to go as soon as you knew it took place in an avery chapter because like we have said like avery is the one she's trying to make friends she's always reaching out in a friendly way so of course we have to see this moment where everyone reaches back from avery's perspective mm. um like you know you could see if this was a if, if this was like a verona chapter it would come more down to the, the choice of words or something yes of course um but like Avery is the kind of tear who more than any other is the one who's been reaching out with her hand. And so like, it's, it's so rewarding that we see everybody reach back from her perspective. Um, Yeah. And like, we, we talked a bit before the break about like, there was that difference between like the way Avery and Lucy handle things. Like we know like Lucy, you know, tends to be like more aggressive and doesn't see the ground or whatever. And is less like overtly friendly. And, And like, I, was to say like that is a very important part like you know they wouldn't be here without lucy's ability to tell alexander to go fuck himself Mm. but like avery's side of things where she's more inclined to reach out and try to build support networks is just as important and like that's what really saves the day here alongside lucy's stuff like they're just they're both equally as important those sorts of ways of of dealing with people Mm. um and so yeah. i think i think i think it's important that like yeah when avery's one comes to the fore, like we we jump into her perspective yeah um yeah exactly you're right wabo definitely knows how
1: to pick i mean it it just makes sense that the based on whether we're focusing on some kind of intense combat or some intense interpersonal relationships or some really uh tricky magical practice stuff we can pick the the protagonist or point of view character from there but it's it's even beyond that because we have things like they're quite emotionally complex situations with lucy and her, her mum and like paul and stuff like that 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 break that base rule but still work so so well it, yeah you're mm. right it, it is a real a talent
0: yeah yeah and then to give verona credit because like I, I feel like i'm always talking about the ways lucy handles problems and the way avery does um, I do, I do also just want to give Verona her, her credit. Like, o- obviously she's good at the practice side of things as well, but I, I do think like Verona's superpower is the way she doesn't judge books by their covers at all. Um, like, you know, the way Tashlet rocks up and everyone else is like giving her weird glances and like giving her birth and Verona just borrows her shirt. Um, mm. like I think Verona's ability to judge people by what they do, not how they appear um is' like equally as admirable as as you know lucy or avery's m o s because she she gives everyone a chance and i like I think that's super important
1: mm yeah yeah um so bristow has lost he has lost three challenges now uh and he's done, but he refuses to concede, and Alexander still kind of seems like he wants to take charge,
0: yeah. And and look, I know we opened this episode with, um, like, uh, a a joke about, you know, how great it is that these two are gone, and I know that Alexander and Bristow are both garbage people, but, like, I have to admit, I felt a little bit, like, bad for Bristow as he goes here. Not too much, because a lot of it's his own fault, because he refuses to concede like this, but, um, you know, it's like the kind of tears clearly feel bad as well, and I guess it's like, you know, as, as much as he's a piece of shit, I don't know if anyone quite deserves to be put at the brownies mercy um again on the other hand bristow does basically volunteer for it because he refuses to concede so i don't know mm, mm,
1: yeah <sighs> the conceding i mean yeah you feel bad for bristow right like there's this moment where god where he says can you call me mr bristow please and then the, <laughs> the narration says the man asked which is just like tragic. The closest I've ever come to feeling sorry for Bristow because he in this moment he has just lost his identity completely in the narration. Yeah. I'm just like, oh fuck.
0: Well, I think it was said at like one time that like really what Bristow collects at his core is titles. Like, you know, obviously he has his collection of aware, but like that is just a huge a huge collection he has as part of his title of getting like a landlord as a title. Like, but at the end of the day, he likes to be yeah like bristow the the man with many titles so the fact that he's been reduced to begging for like the default adult male title Mm. um is like yeah very humiliating and and sort of humbling um and i guess yeah like this results in him taking the only power he can over them which is making them all feel bad for sending him to the brownies which is like a strategy i suppose (laughs) Mm. uh yeah yeah
1: uh, yeah <sighs> <laughs> um so yeah alex is uh ready to step in still as headmaster he's kind of like ah oh, thanks guys now i'll take it from here yeah. but of course no the kennedy is nicolette and some of the others object um ray comes out acting still as headmaster and banishes alex for a few days and as the chapter ends alex vows revenge on everybody in a very chilling way
0: <laughs> um I, to, to backtrack a bit uh through all the stuff you just went through i fucking love that it, it's really nicolette who calls him out as not being the headmaster like he starts to say a headmastery thing and nicolette but the first time i re- uh, nicolette just yells out you're not the headmaster and when i first read that i actually read it as something lucy said because it's a very lucy thing to just interrupt alexander with something as blunt as you're not the headmaster. <laughs> um mm-hmm. so I, I actually did a bit of a double take when I saw it was Nicolette and not Lucy. And like again I love that as a delivery on all this stuff because the Kennedy's have reached out they've reached someone like Nicolette and she's like taking that forward and like standing with them standing up like up for them. Um and like it come it, it's more important coming from Nicolette like you know Lucy Verona and Avery have been kind of the troublemakers from a certain point of view that's wrong. Um but to have Nicolette be the one who tells Alexander he's not the headmaster when he was her, like, you know, master or something before, like, it carries so much weight. Mm, yeah.
1: Man, the moment where Alexander tries to pull the no, you're not headmaster card, um, and Ray's just like, nah, I am. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Great times. I, my favorite line from uh, Ray here is when Alexander's like, you realize by not doing this, you've made me an enemy, a powerful enemy. And Ray's just sort of like understood and then fucking answers the student's question instead of talking to Alexander. What else can you do, right?
1: (laughs) Um, There's this moment where Ray says, he's talking to the tenants and he says, tenants of Lawrence Bristow, you're welcome to stay for dinner. It shouldn't take more than 10 minutes to get ready once I get them started and the quality is top notch. If you're unwilling or unable to make the drive home tonight, I can look into accommodations. Right Which is may seem like not much, but it's such a practical example of the practical considerations of being a headmaster and having like a duty of care in this situation. Like yes, Ray is not the ideal headmaster, but you you have to admit he's at least better than Alex and you know the man <laughs> um, in the sense that he is at least in the short term looking out for people.
0: Yeah, like I still maintain I don't think Ray is a good choice for a like yes. proper headmaster. Yes. He's absolutely fantastic as an interim one. And not just because he's here. Like, you know, the fact that he is one of the co-founders and is present are obviously all massive points in his favour. But I actually just think like as a person as well, he is someone who will like try and not like rock the boat. Like he has none of those aspirations for power or anything. He's gonna step up to keep things orderly because he doesn't like disorder and just try to like, keep the boat afloat until somebody else can take the reins who's better suited for it. Like, he's mm. in every way, shape, and form a fantastic choice for an interim headmaster.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah.
1: I mean, I agree with you. I, we'll probably talk about... The discussion question this week, we will talk about more of this stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then the end of this chapter is like Alexander vowing revenge, and it it seems like... <laughs> at the end of this chapter you'll be like oh my god now this is what they're gonna have to do with like let's see that's alexander go eight. all out arc- yeah exactly yeah
0: that's arcade at the least yeah yeah and then
1: <laughs> uh, nope i mean we'll get to that next chapter but like i loved how that it really feels like it, it it's blunt it's so blunt in a way that is really uh <laughs> Like Game of Thrones esque, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you feel like you can see these pieces slowly moving to, into alignment, and then there's just this blunt feeling that leaves you as a reader, is like, oh my god, this world is brutal, you know, in a really satisfying
0: way. Yeah, yeah, I suppose we'll get to it as, as Alexander gets off t- towards the end of this next chapter, but yeah, I, I like that comparison to A Song of Ice and Fire in that way that you feel like things are going in one direction. And then when the rug gets pulled out from under you, you actually sort of look at it and you're like, oh, this was obviously sort of where it was going all along. Yes. Yes. Um, it's not like a cheap twist where it's like, no, you know, it it doesn't feel right. It's like, you, it, it's just the story cleverly makes you walk the other way.
1: Yeah. Sorry. I should clarify when I said, game of thrones i'm referring to kind of early <laughs> game of thrones but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the horrible cheap twists and lame plots that that you know, game of
0: thrones <laughs> yeah exactly much more like a season three one not a season eight one yeah
1: yeah um we touch on uh 7.x let's get into it shall we yeah uh we're in alexander's head but we open it first with what seems like a ray interlude we're watching ray hanging out with his friends and we obviously begin to recognize them fairly quickly.
0: Yes. uh yeah. At the start, I was like, "Hmm, is this a Ray or a Duroche interlude?" And I couldn't decide which one of them it was. And it turns out the answer was <laughs> neither. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, I I got like so excited for this because that framing of the chapter opens with like before as the title, which sort of tells you, "Oh, okay, so later in the chapter we're going to do the present." And I was like, "Wait, this is so great because we get to see the gang back when they were younger and they're kind of more carefree." Mm. And it's like, "Oh, we can see a little bit like how." people end up as like Alexander Bristow ray like you know these these like broken adults like how do you, nice cool people or, or close end up like that
1: yeah um yeah I, I I want to touch on that in a little bit but yes uh, I just quickly while we're here Duroche is as intense in the practice as she is in her personal life she's a real <laughs> champ I love
0: it uh, yeah her characterization is is very fun uh there's a lot to go into it's like I love how she doesn't get computers because she's like she does the opposite for her job mm-hmm. um she's very like animalistic uh yeah it, it all just feels very natural and like it's a very different duroche but at the same time you can still see how it's the younger version of the same person we've met um mm. it, it just in general I think actually this segment does a really good job of like characterizing everyone as uh, like younger versions of their selves and there's there's lots of really fine details put into doing stuff like that like the clothing like i think the stuff where it's like you know Bristow changed all his clothes except he kept the bloody blazer on as a bit of a trophy um <laughs> durashay cleaned her skin but like didn't clean her clothes at all probably because she doesn't really think about clothes much yeah um because they're a very like human sort of civilized idea um sort of like Alexander uh, makes lots of notes about people's demeanour and stuff like it. This is like a group of people who we kind of all have to get introduced to. And the chapter does a really good job at imprinting them all in our heads.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, here's a weird part from this section. We get the first names of these characters who we didn't know the first names for. And it reminds mm. me of what happens during our holiday schedule where we finally find out Frenner's dad's name. We're getting to see I mean it is like we're seeing a more human side of this character that we've only seen from in one kind of situation. So we see Larry Bristow here, which and Larry fits him so well in a way that is kind of indescribable. And again, Marie Durochet fits again a way that is a little bit indescribable, but it just kind of clicks so nicely.
0: <laughs> yeah, well like again, it's that feeling like this is the younger Durochet, so she has a first name, whereas like the terrifying woman she's grown into at this point in the story she's mm. she's not a a person anymore she well like she is, but you know what i mean like she's not she's not an approachable person, so she doesn't have a first name now anymore she's just duchet um mm. like yeah it's it's closer to a title um whereas yeah like I love Larry as like. It's one of those things where when you hear it, you are just like, of course, younger Bristow was called Larry. Like, mm-hmm. he's that like goofy friend who's like obsessed with making it in the business world. Like, I don't know. I'm sure, I, I'm sure a lot of people have had that sort of friend who's just a bit of like a goofball and he's obsessed with making it in business. And yeah, like you know, he's that. And you know, he, later on, he uh, ascends and becomes Lawrence, which is the much fancier one because you know. By this point in the story, he is actually a slave trader and all that. Um, but when he's just the sort of little goofball they don't quite take seriously, he's just Larry. Um, mm. It's another great way. This chapter captures like the change in personality these people have gone through over the last like 30 years. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's perfect. Um, I I want to touch on one other thing, which is like, <laughs> uh keeps talking about how he's looking to invest in a startup.
2: And it's like,
1: (laughs) it just feels so weird. Like presumably this ends up being a seed that pays off with the Blue Heron Institute coming into, you know, fruition. Yeah. But it feels so strange that he's just like, hey, do you have any startup ideas? Startup ideas? Anybody? I want to fund a startup, startup ideas, anybody? Like what what a weird guy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think it's just meant to demonstrate like how wealthy he is. There's like, a, he just has muddy to throw around. And again, I think, Ale- well, yeah, Alexander comments on how Musa doesn't want to go back home because he has to fight with his family because he's sort of been made this de facto leader and there's like some war for leadership. And obviously, we mm. know he ends up winning that. But it's sort of like, you could say, like, here, these are the people he probably trusts a lot more than his family. So he's maybe just looking for more long term ways to secure ties with them. Mm. like like you know he has money to throw around and it's like hey you you want to work on a movie I'll, I'll be your investor and then we have to keep being friends like and you have to like give me excuses to get the fuck away from my brothers more often
1: mm. yeah <laughs> um
0: but yeah like yeah i so I, know, I I was like it does it does come up specifically that he has sort of startup capital to throw around so much that i was sort of like hmm like you know should should you get your tinfoil rustling about this you know uh Mm, yeah let's hear wait, it Wait, my my ruben-esque theory on this yeah would be that's a that's
1: th- already a word you can't just use that word
0: <laughs> uh wait, where did miss get her funds to start Kenneth, huh anything about it? musa uh missa uh miss it's all there uh all there. All I'm it saying.
1: all adds up
0: <laughs> <laughs> um but no for for real um I also want to talk about Charles here as well, because obviously uh, Charles shows up mm-hmm. and I love how he's characterized because you can already see how
1: he doesn't fit into this group. Yeah. Right? He just clearly <laughs> doesn't.
0: He, yeah, he's already drifting in this direction of not being a terrible person. Yeah. And um, I'm still a little leery of like someone whose job it is to like make or transform others. Mm. Um, But, like, yeah, I mean, he obviously gets in, like, a bit of a fight with Larry in particular about, like, ambitions and all that. Um, And there's this funny thing where he's like, I don't want to be part of high society. And it's like, well, Charles, good news on that front, kind of.
1: Yeah, well, Um, I mean, who's right about this argument between Charles and and Larry? Because uh, they both don't end up in a great... yeah. They both don't end up in great positions. I think the only person who comes out of this looking squeaky clean is Louisa. Um, and we'll get to yeah. that in a little bit.
0: uh, yeah. I mean, I'd argue Charles. Charles got his back stabbed, whereas you yeah, know Bristow chose. Bristow to deserved be it. Yeah. yeah. Uh no, I agree. It was funny. Yeah, I I did the same thing. I was like, hmm, well, what can we tell about the morals of the book from looking at where they ended up? And it's like, I don't know. They're on opposites, and they both <laughs> both in like fates worse than death. So, yep. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs>
1: Um, so yeah, the gang, uh, starts reminiscing over key moments from their lives, effectively sharing war stories. Uh, first is Alexander's story about a hangmaiden he was ensnared by as a young man.
0: Yes. Uh, and so Wabo actually also released a pack dice document on hangmaidens after this chapter came out. Uh, so that's really fun. So you should go check that out if you're like, you know, a tabletop fan and you're thinking about getting into pack dice, Mm -hmm. which at this point is almost as much pale dice as it is. Pack dice.
1: yeah um yeah i mean i've been trying to with each of these kind of war stories that they share i'm trying to look into it and see what to take from it and i I mm. couldn't find anything too much to take from alexander's story but um it is a fun one regardless <laughs> uh,
0: what jumped out to me is that the reason he didn't get killed by this thing is that his cousin died so he had the option to become leader of the family and his ambition won out over his heart mm. and like that's the most fucking Alexander bullshit to me ever, that it's like, he's sort of fully admitting, he's like, oh, yeah, I was head over heels for her, like, I loved her as much as I could love anyone, but I would leave that behind in a second to lead my family. <laughs> it was like, 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 you know, just, we knew Alexander was sort of alone and stuff, and you sort of really see why here, like, he will leave a relationship that he's, like, supernaturally happy in, uh, in order to pursue, like, his ambition. It's, it's very him. Mm. um it also makes you wonder if like part of his like if this affected his ability to have future relationships you know like it would be easy not to be able to trust uh people you're in a relationship with after this yeah
1: yeah yeah definitely i can see that because they might turn out to be spiders
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's a risk we all face
1: yeah i mean that's uh, that's one of the perils of dating right is are they actually human or are they secretly a spider trying to ensnare me and eat me and then collect my trophies
0: etc this is why i don't do online dating reuben because i don't yeah. want to date on the web Oof.
1: <laughs> 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 oh get the award for best podcast joke as it goes to elliot um so let's move on shall we <laughs> um (laughs) next up is musa's apprentice story about musa's apprentice who turned against him and then musa uh, punished this apprentice by turning them into a semi-sentient stain oh sorry we missed one didn't we yeah we missed ray's story uh ray describes his adventures in cracking another Technomancer's technomancer security systems and being latched onto by an identity thief kind of
0: yeah I mean, it make, it's one of those things that makes sense in retrospect, because, of course, like one of the prominent types of digital other is some sort of identity theft. Thief. Yeah. Because like, if you think about what sort of energy people are putting into the world, like, you know, what are the patterns? Like, if Yeah, what are the fears? Patterns, yeah. Yeah. Like like so much of news coverage and shit of early internet was like identity thieves and kind of still is. So, of course, that would manifest as one of the types of others. Mm. Mm. Yeah.
1: 100%. Um, this is a fun one.
0: I, I, I especially
1: liked thinking about this being a potential origin story for Ray's seeming lack of empathy sometimes or like lack of humanity that he can sometimes have. Um, he talks about how he had to push a big red button to nuke everything in response to this and how difficult it was to kind of put the pieces back together and I love that this might be an explanation or at least a, you know, an element of an explanation for why Ray seems a lot less person than he might have used to seem. Oh, I just thought that was a really fun uh thing to think of.
0: You're you're right. The idea that some of this identity that was stolen from him he didn't necessarily get back would actually make mm. a lot of sense in this universe. Mm. Um and I like that sort of through line you're starting to pull of like, you know, like we talked about how, you know, oh maybe Alexander's gives a bit of insight into why he struggles with relationships now like you know there's yes. a bit of like in these war stories uh you can see remnants of where their like trauma and their character flaws come from
1: yeah yeah for sure um i think it's fun to look at these stories and try and see okay how does this help turn you into the person that i know in the future yeah yeah um so, uh, next is, then it's Musa who talks about how he turned his apprentice into a semi-sentient stain on a wall.
0: <laughs> Yikes. He continues to be the most terrifying and awful seeming of all of these people. Like we talked about how, so the theory on how he gets all these extra implements and familiars is that he steals them from practitioners. Mm. Um, so there just seems to be nothing to like about like Musa and his family so far. Mm.
1: Yeah. Um. Yeah, he's really a piece of shit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, he seems like the worst one already at this stage. Um, yes,
1: even at this early stage. Yeah,
0: and and what's funny is like everyone's constantly reminding him like he is set up to become the leader of like the biggest family. So it's just like sort of reinforcing that link between being a shithead and being in a position of power in this universe. Mm. Um. I I also think it's really funny how as as is telling his story you can really see the differences in uh, how everyone responds to details. Like, yeah. Ray and Charles are, are very focused on, like, the person. Louisa as well. They're sort mm-hmm. of focused on the person and how it's going. Whereas, like, you know, like, Larry is just constantly chiming in with the fucking worst takes of, like, oh, yeah, I always wondered what happened to that guy. Yeah. Oh, well. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's kind of wild, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, this... This is obviously a horrifying tale of what can go wrong for any practitioner who is too power-hungry, but I think the thing that we're meant to talk about here is Louise's reaction. She is, as anybody should be, obviously (laughs) upset that her, in air quotes, friends can be as casually merciless and cruel as this, and the question that is worth asking or that we kind of have been asking consistently throughout this story is, you know, where are all the good practitioners? And this is one answer to that question of just, they become uncomfortable with the cruelty that this life demands. So they eventually just kind of stop being as much of a practitioner, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like it's already clear that at this point, Louisa is trying to drift away from these people and you don't blame her. Um, I I think, yeah, it was like, like when, when this chapter first started, I was like, Oh, Louisa, like, I don't think we've heard about her. Uh, Like, you know, has she died at this point? And it was like, every time she opened her mouth, it was like, oh no, okay, I see why she's no longer around. It's because yeah. she's a good person and she didn't because want she to doesn't do all to... bullshit. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there's another moment where she says, oh, I like to stay out of trouble. And I was like, oh, that's why we haven't seen you in the story. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly right. <sighs> yeah. Uh, so... Then, of course, we get Charles, and Charles's tale is of a time that a revenant hunted a gang that he was involved with, ending this gang and getting to Charles. mm hmm um, And yeah, like, this is an interesting one to look at, because the story behind the story is that this revenant was someone that was killed, possibly burned alive, by this gang, um, and it came back to seek revenge, And because Charles has had loose affiliations with them, it came after Charles but ultimately decided he wasn't connected enough to be punished with this kind of righteous revenge. Um, and I I love that this is kind of, if we're looking at what is this the seed of, this is the seed of Charles then becoming, to, to borrow a phrase, <laughs> like an other sympathiser, you know? Mm, mm. Uh, you can kind of see why Charles has become part of an other community when he's seen these examples of what is just it's brutal yes but justifiable in in revenge right from what we can tell of this story
0: yeah like like charles tells this story and louisa seems to be the only other one who gets his point which is that like the the point of this story is that the revenant came about because he was enabling a gang that was doing terrible things yes and it's like he and louisa are the only ones who seem to get that everyone else is like making excuses as to like why you know the Oh, the Revenant said he he wasn't as involved, so that's like the all-clear from the universe, and Charles is saying, yep. no, I don't think that's enough for me. Yep. Um, Good on you, Charles. Yeah. Uh, you could sort of see why Charles is the sort of person Miss was willing to work with um, before he was even Forsworn, mm. um, because <laughs> he's just not a total piece of shit. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: <sighs>
1: yeah. Um, I... We also should should point out that Louisa goes off to the bathroom after this to excuse herself from the situation, basically. And Alexander's quip as she walks out of earshot is, don't go killing her anytime soon or you'll have another vengeful dead to deal with. Alexander <laughs> joked, which is just fucking <laughs> insane, an insane thing to say.
0: <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's, it's such a poor taste quip. Um, I... I think what was even worse to me, though, is so then she, she gets the phone call and, like, gets to leave. Yeah. And as she's leaving, Musa is like, mm, yes, she's a resource who remains to be tapped. Mm-hmm. And, like, Larry's nodding and Alexander's like, yes, but what can we use her for? And it was just like, fucking really, guys? Like, that, like, that's how you get to talk about your friends when they're not around? It's like, oh, yes, they're a resource we haven't fully tapped yet. Um, mm-hmm. Like, at the same time, these are the more young, carefree versions of these people, but God, you can really see that those seeds of being shitheads are already pretty firmly planted in a few of them. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like Ray, Ray is already sitting there with one eye on the computer as an excuse for not doing anything. Yeah, about He's already it.
1: ready to not engage in this horrifying stuff. Yeah. Um, so that, that's when this scene more or less ends and we jump forward to the present and see Alexander preparing
0: his retribution. Yes, and this is when we realize we've been bamboozled. It was Alexander the whole time. It's actually
1: Alexander's POV. Uh, So yeah,
0: sorry. I just I do want to talk about the sleight of hand that the story does because I think you you assume you end up assuming it's a Ray POV Mm. because so much of the attention and focus is on every little thing Ray is doing, and of course that we come out here and it's like, oh no, it's because it was an Alexander POV, but he was watching Ray like a whore. Yeah,
1: Um, possibly even being inside Ray's kind of point of view to an extent
0: i i actually don't think so on my second read i was looking out for that i think it is like from alexander's perspective as he smokes his cigarette back in time Mm. Mm. it's just he spends the entire time this like in in the present focusing on everything ray's doing in such a way that it almost leads us to think this is ray's perspective
1: Mm. fair enough
0: yeah you're right um
1: yeah i i think that yeah yeah fair enough i don't know could be either, but. Sure. I'm happy to, to go with your, you, you looked into it specifically. I was just kind of a armchair theorizing, I guess. Um, (laughs) I do really like the cigarette trick. So basically Alex uh, has smokes in very important meetings and often saves cigarettes from these times so that he can use them as a kind of aid to relive those meetings. Um, Yeah. Such a cool way to practice augury.
0: It really is like, uh, the story continues to wow me with ideas like this that just make total sense but i would never would have thought of um, yeah i especially love how do you remember when we did the like seeing eye comic of alexander's like in the start of yes the arc and the thing he did in that one is he like he took on bristow's site yes and we we sort of commented on like how that is something that should be like a tool of empathy, like you literally giving yourself the ability to see through someone else's eyes. Mm-hmm. And instead, he used it to take him down. And I I could not but see a bit of that here as well. Like here, he's got a tool that literally allows him to go back and revisit when they were friends and when they were on the same side. And he mm. uses that to fuck Ray over and Duroche who doesn't yeah. deserve it anywhere near as much. Not that Ray actually does, but um. But there's just this, a bit of a trend I've noticed in all of Alexander's big powers, where it feels like this should be a tool for empathy, but he keeps using them as weapons. Yeah.
1: <sighs>
0: yeah. I mean, I
1: guess it goes back to the old adage about, like, science or any tool really being a, not necessarily good or evil, but a, a, a neutral tool that is just employed by whoever it employs it, right? Um Yeah. You yeah. could see if Alexander was a different person, he could be a real hero, a real empathetic hero, but he's not.
0: <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. Um, Yeah, yeah. So uh,
1: I Alex kind of starts setting up his plays here, and God, it's scary. He basically has all this leverage over people, these swords of Damocles, which he has, has kind of kept dangling, and he basically starts setting up each of them to drop. Um, yeah, he sets up the thing with Duracea. Uh he, he looks at how he might injure Zed through Bree. It's all very brutal stuff.
0: Sorry, no, he wants to damage Ray via Zed and via, Zed. via Bree. It's via like, yeah, it's Bree. just, yeah. yeah, Alexander with the brakes off is just terrifying because there's no line he won't cross. And he's got, as you said, all those, all those swords of Damocles, like stacked up, he just needs to pick them
1: yeah yeah um and then he does this connection severing with the kennetiers which is obviously also very concerning we kind of see what happens with it uh here and later but there potentially are even further ramifications it's hard to know it he doesn't actually say what he's doing but we definitely see at least one implication of it
0: yeah there's one point where he says he he says he severs a connection there's another point where he says he sort of severs multiple or that multiple will be affected maybe so yeah, it's yep. unclear whether we've seen all the ramifications, just the major ones like yeah. I, I...
1: Yeah. Um yeah, we'll get to that later. Uh, and then of course, finally Alex makes a call to get Ray in trouble. He basically dobs him in with somebody. Uh again, hard to know what the ramifications of this are going to be. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I kind of got the impression none. Um like I I think a lot of what he's doing in this chapter apart from the thing he does to Lucy is like mm. throwing balls in the air and he kind of would need to catch them again to set it off. And yeah. he's not going to be around to do that. Um, yeah. so this is the sort of thing that was meant to inconvenience Ray, um, as like the first step to really like unnerve him yes. later on. And that like, so it wasn't meant to be the final blow. Um, similarly, the whole thing with Duroche's um, elephant friend, uh, it doesn't sound like it's going to go anywhere now that alexander's well dead. yeah
1: alexander was going to use it as leverage over ted and that gets interrupted shortly
0: yeah so i i i get the impression that we're kind of we kind of see all the end of all of it here like you know mm. that monster doesn't sound like it's going to get released because he doesn't actually send the go-ahead i don't think yes um the Lucy thing kind of goes off in this chapter, so there might be more there, but I, 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 the way everything else feels like it's not going to go anywhere, I'm kind of tempted to think that's the end of that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so these are all Alexander's last things, and they're maybe not going to go anywhere now that he's out of the picture.
1: Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll have to see. I don't know. I feel like the connection cutting with the Kenneteers is the one that we probably will see a bit more of. I suspect we might see a bit of the Ray phone call one, but yeah, hard to know.
0: Yeah, I guess we'll see. I could see it going either way.
1: Um So, Ted shows up. Uh Ted rocks up, finds his way to Alexander, and they begin to have a conversation. Alexander reveals this horrifying snare that he has set for Ted. Um This is yep. pure evil, right? Like, there's no <laughs> way to describe what he's threatening Ted with that isn't just purely evil. It's like it's the equivalent of like threatening to blow up an orphanage if the superhero doesn't you know acquiesce to your demands it's like mustache twirlingly evil
0: <laughs> uh yeah got it. like like this eventually boils down to these options where he's like okay ted you either kill yourself or i release a prime evil or you awaken and swear undying fealty to me yeah there's no like, good option there me. is there like, <laughs> um this is yeah yeah as as you said it, it like just pure evil and it very dramatic though, like I was on the edge of my seat, I was like, "Oh my God, what's Ted gonna do mm.
1: yeah i it's horrifying um it's horrifying uh Alexander tells Ted these options and is about to uh, win seemingly like there's almost no way Ted would get out of it except a sort of divine intervention, as it were, as Alexander suddenly shockingly dies
0: <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean again. Even after all this terrible stuff Alexander tries to do here, it's like, you know, I feel like this, like, present part of the chapter almost exists to tell you, hey, we need to get rid of Alexander. There's no way he can be around and not be a problem. Mm. And yet, like, I still feel a bit bad when he dies. And I feel like the story wants me to, because, like, it, it very explicitly puts Lucy in that position as well. Um, mm so it's just, it's like, it feels like this moment where it was like, this was necessary, like John said, but like, God, we still don't have to feel good about it. Like as much as I hate Alexander, it's like, you still don't want to feel good about killing someone like this. Mm, yeah.
1: Um, you don't, I don't know. I mean, after what he's threatening Ted with, I, I can't feel sorry for him.
0: Yeah. I'm. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, yeah, it's not that I feel sorry for him. It's that I feel bad that we had to kill someone. Like, it's just the act of killing that just feels like, uh yeah lame Mm. but i don't feel bad that alexander is gone (laughs) yeah definitely um
1: so yeah i love this moment where alex is thinking about how he's gonna take ted down and thinks the man wasn't at his best having just lost bristow faced with what might be his worst fear he was prepared to throw it all away and that kind of preparation could give a man an edge it's so good. Alex is describing how he's going to get the one up on Ted while simultaneously describing to us as the audience why Alex himself is distracted and able to be taken <laughs> out.
0: It's so perfect. It's beautiful. Like, double speak. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I especially love it because on top of this, like, so much of the conversation between Alex and Ted is framed around Alex is constantly talking all this stuff about, how, like, uh, you know, Ted, your abilities come from your, like, power to look to the past and draw an experience. I look to the future, and that makes me different because I can do, uh, like, X, Y, Z. And the hilarious thing about that is, like, they're so busy looking at the past and the future, neither of them will looking at the present, as John <laughs> just fucking snuck up behind him and got a headshot. <laughs> you know. um, it's so good.
1: Yeah. It is great. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's really good. Uh, so Alex has died, and we switch perspectives to, kind of to Alexander's... Last remaining bits of sentience as he watches over this scene. Uh, John is here. He has shot and killed Alexander, and uh, tells Ted that he is free. Uh, Ted goes off, and then Lucy finds this scene. John standing over Alexander's now headless body.
0: I think the implication is that Lucy was here when Alex got shot, even, but I'm not. I'm not 100 on that. Um, but uh, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, I, yeah. I, lo- I I just really, really, really love how this section is labeled after. Mm. because like at first I was like what does after mean and then I was like oh it's after Alexander's death but we're switching to John's POV that's weird And it's like right at the end I was able to sort of put together oh no 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 this is Alexander's POV wait wait it's like the same bamboozle we had halfway through the chapter it's like I've been bamboozled again it, the whole chapter is Alex's point of view and we, we see this last bit from yeah the remnants of Alexander's soul as uh mm. as they fade out it's it's fantastic
1: yeah god what a what a format <laughs> what a format for a chapter right mm, mm.
0: i just love how i got done by the same boozle twice in, in the one chapter mm. it's just always alexander that's the lesson from this chapter is it's always alexander
1: mm. yeah <sighs> it's always alexander um So, yeah, I wonder whether we're going to see Ted again. Like, we get this scene at the end where John sets Ted free and tells him to run off into the woods. Um, (laughs) And, like, looking at how Bristow used the aware and how Alexander was threatening to use TED especially, it 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 reminded me of the vibe that of practitioners kind of dominating and bending others to their will, right? They're, they're tools that practitioners find it morally acceptable to bend to their will and use for their purposes, right? And so I mm. wonder whether TED or any of the other AWARE are going to like unify with Team Ken in the same way that the others are fighting for their kind of independence. It, it's a similar situation for some of these AWARE. I wonder. I don't know
0: yeah well yeah it's interesting like now that you've brought that up like, i could see an alliance between like you know a bunch of the people at sergeant hall and Kennet. like because you're right there are similarities between you know the aware are just like another oppressed group in a way like they're yeah people that practitioners use rather than help yeah um i mean like you know i think like i you know i, I would love for there to be a like you know a spin-off or a story set in that building like you know like post Bristow, it'd be so fun yeah. to have like the I- short I stories see... of the aware yeah like you know because as like clem and stuff go back and try to like keep it together because i think alexander says they're going to continue there the idea that like without Bristow holding them together they need to try and do it themselves and there'd be so yeah. many hilarious shenanigans as all these people bounce off each other yeah. um so i like i'm kind of hoping there's some alliance between that building and kennett because then we'll get to see more of them and how they're going. Mm. Um yeah i mean i definitely think john seems to relate to ted in a lot of ways um like as as fellow soldiers sort of used by other people i do i don't know if we'll see ted again in this story but i hope he's able to find somewhere safe
1: yeah me too me too i don't know it feels like actually this is something it doesn't feel like ted or kevin ever got their time in the limelight you know time in the spotlight uh, Kevin, maybe when we had his interlude, that's his, us saying goodbye to him. But for Ted, I still feel like there's something else there, you know? Oh, hmm.
0: I don't know if I agree. Cause he's like, I think his whole thing, like he has this really interesting line in this one where he says, freedom's scarier than anything he's had before. Mm. And, and that sort of gives, I think that's that final piece of the puzzles. You can see why he just started working for Bristow the second he yeah got out of his thing. Cause he's not, you know, he's gone through thousands or tens of thousands of years of life like he's not used to having he
1: needs structure he needs something to give him a purpose right
0: yeah he was chasing this other thing for so long that when he finally got out of it like he he had no idea what he wanted to do so he he tagged along with bristow now he's yeah yeah he's terrified Wait, i yeah i mean i'm sure there's like a journey for him i just don't know how much it intersects with this story anymore because i feel like we've sort of explored maybe what we needed to for pale yeah but i could be wrong yeah, I often am you're with right, so
1: things. It would be a good poetic ending for Ted to be finally have no overt purpose to achieve and be able to just have his walk off into the sunset moment. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah. So uh Lucy's here <laughs> and we get this horrifying <laughs> moment where Lucy finds John having murdered Alex and we know that things are their relationship is permanently affected. I mean, magically as well. We get this line, the air filled momentarily with the smell of acid and ink, which is mirroring what happened when Alexander cut connections on the Kinniteers, and seemingly Mm. this is kind of the same thing, if not the eventual manifestation of that action, right?
0: Um, Yeah, I think we're meant to infer from that line that this is like Alexander's doing. Yes, this is what Alexander
1: did. He got Lucy to come here at this time so that it would sever their connections even though he didn't know what it was going to be right obviously no
0: i think that's what's funny about it is like he he used this tool to sever the connection and presumably leaves it to the spirits to decide how that manifests and the spirits are like oh there's some guy who's about to get shot in the head by john that seems like a good one (laughs) and they brought lucy uh, a front row ticket
1: Mm. yeah um good work alexander (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah like i don't know What, what do you think are the further ramifications we're going to see? I mean, Lucy talks about how she was considering making John her, her other, and that's obviously canned now, uh, seemingly. Do we think there are more connections that are going to be cut or altered here? Do we think this is it? I don't know.
0: My my gut tells me that that's it, but I, you know, I, that's, I'm not super confident on that or anything. Mm. Um, but my, my, yeah, my gut just seems to be like that, that is what he did. He cut. The connection between lucy and john and it's sort of manifested as her seeing this and deciding she doesn't want him as her familiar anymore and yeah i mean i don't know I, I i think that'll be it but i think that'll have sort of lead on ramifications like lucy has leaned on john a lot and and also kind of vice versa um so yeah I, it could have follow-on effects now that those two aren't as close but uh I mean, I was mostly just, like, poor Lucy. Like, she tries so hard to help here. Like, John's just telling her to, like, go away and drown it out. And she's like, yeah. no, like, I need to help. It's for Kenneth. It's just like, yeah. oh, God, you're so, like, she's such a brave, caring person and to her own detriment.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, it hurts seeing this as the ending of the Lucy and John interactions in this chapter, right? We kind of knew, oh, sorry, in this yeah. arc, we kind of knew that something like this was coming. Um and it sucks.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think the uh the John and Lucy familiar train was like had a lot of people like, you know, it was a very very busy uh train. So, it's a real shame to see yeah, it. a very just, crowded yeah. train, yeah. Yeah. See it get derailed.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um and we get this scene with Musette which is heart-wrenching. Mm. She sees Lucy distraught and decides to be a source of support to her and it's like Man, Musette, you're great. And it's a perfect wrap-up of the <laughs> introduction of Musette and her interactions with John and Lucy. Like, oh Musette,
0: you are great. Yeah, I Musette fucking rules. It. I love the way she like appears and she's like, Do you need help? And John starts answering. She's like, I'm not talking to you. Yeah. Um, and she goes and just helps Lucy and support. it's just so beautiful. And then yeah. um she does get I love how this sort of chapter ends with like, you know, Musette finishes her talk with Lucy. Sits with her for a bit and then she gets up and she cracks her jaw and sets to work eating Alexander. Yep. Um, and then like we get the final line, like the last practices that gave any awareness of the scene to the body ceased to function and all went dark. And it's just this shitty, undignified end for Alexander as Musette beautifully finishes supporting Lucy and just comes and so he eats him uh Brie style. Um, yeah. I I loved it. What an ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, do you think Musette would be a good headmaster? <laughs> <laughs> Musette for the headmaster? What do we think?
0: I don't, I don't know about for the headmaster, but for, for, you know, somebody who can work in the sick bay, sure.
2: Hmm. Okay. All right. All right. All
1: right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's the end of arc, uh, arc seven.
0: Yeah. I'm excited to get into arc eight. I, I mean, I assume there aren't going to be any more arc seven chapters uh
1: no there i don't think there will be we got a spring break no uh bonus material i think it's feels like we're moving on to the next phase of the story
0: yeah yeah i mentioned there'll be a bit of a blue heron cleanup segment but maybe the story will time skip that i guess we'll see
1: yeah we'll have to see um so yeah that's uh the end of the chapters for this week Before we wrap up, though, of course, we've got other things to get to. Let's first get to some pale predictions.
0: Yeah, Um, so what have you brought for us?
1: uh, I have brought a prediction from community member. I am measly impressed. Touching on when Alexander lights up a cigarette um, in this interlude, failing to notice the chime, or noticing the chime for Ted but failing to notice John, uh, I'm measly impressed brings out a brilliant theory that that cigarette was not in fact a regular cigarette but was in fact sig sig the cigarette came to (laughs) sabotage alexander's power weakening his defenses and leading to his death and no one will ever know how pivotal of a role sig played but it (laughs) saved Kenneth. and i know this is a ridiculous theory but i just love it so much because (laughs) sig has to play a role at some point so why not here (laughs)
0: Sig being the secret kingmaker of this region of Canada is a fucking hilarious thing that I'm here for. Um, yeah, no, I agree. The the idea that Alexander was using cigarettes here did kind of jump out to me with Sig in the back of my head because I, I I agree. I'm the same. I'm waiting for Sig the cigarette to have his moment uh in the spotlight, and I was wondering if it was going to be here. Um, I don't know that it is, but I guess we'll see. Hmm. Yeah, I think it is, but yeah, we will see. <laughs> Uh, and
1: who what prediction did you pull out
0: oh uh, so i i've pulled out a comment from uh Giso, mm-hmm. who uh so sort of said that they or they've they've basically said um someone who said they weren't directly involved in killing the carmine beast just told the hungry choir to do it which mm. is like an interesting sort of loophole to some of the questions the Tears were asking that i think we've fully addressed mm. um but the the reason jaso sort of brings this up is uh like talking about this is why lawrence bristow was a huge part of this story because he is our sort of proof that someone can truthfully say they had no hand in something even though they were like you know knowingly and willingly the director of it like bristow's Mm. constantly doing this stuff where he like puts his aware in a room and sort of like hey you know wouldn't it be interesting if you did this but i'm not technically telling you to yeah and and like how karma is okay with that and so just so sort of says, you know, Brewster is our evidence that somebody can just like put their tools, even if they're sentient, in a room like that and tell them to do with ev- tell them to do it with everything, but explicit instructions and karma will give them a pass. And so that's mm. presumably what whoever is controlling the Hungry Choir did.
1: Mm. Mm. Interesting. I. I mean, I guess we or someone in the comments, if they want to, needs to go back through every interview and and figure out. If the wording will support this on any of these, um yeah, 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 interesting, I can see it, I can see that being the purpose that we hit that beat so hard with Bristow,
0: um, yeah, yeah, exactly, like I like I really like this thought of tying something like what Bristow represents into back to our carmine beast thing, which is like technically the a plot of this story,
1: yeah, yeah, interesting, I like that, um. Should we touch on our discussion question from last the last few weeks, I guess, Month. with our holiday schedule, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, this one ran for quite a while, which meant we got a bunch of good answers. So, um, yeah, I guess let's start diving into what people thought about Bristow's new network, whether it's a good idea and what changes they'd want to make. Yeah. Um, let's
1: pull out – I'm going to pull out – Uh, again i'm pulling out a response from i'm measly impressed great work uh they talked about i mean they they touched on the idea a bit the thing they raised about bristow's network that i thought was very interesting was why haven't we heard more about this type of thing before why haven't because surely other practitioners have tried it why hasn't it worked that's what (laughs) bristow's network needs it needs a bit of historic awareness um and i love that i love the idea that with a bit more thought, this might be a really great idea, or it might not. We need to just kind of examine it a bit more first. Um, We definitely don't want to be forced into agreeing with it at the 11th hour of a conflict at gunpoint, right? Um, So, yeah, I I just thought that was a great point to raise. Uh, Research can help you learn (laughs) from the lessons of the past.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is uh, like a really good point. It's this, This isn't an incredibly innovative idea, so it's like, why hasn't it happened already? you know like this is like when when, you know someone comes to you with an app idea and it's just like okay but this is pretty basic so why isn't it already a thing like is it has it been impossible to do till now like is bristow uniquely suited to start it or um you know do these things just inevitably fail um landis 963 kind of gave a, a similar ish answer where they sort of focused on they don't think something like this could work with a single authoritarian leader um, mm. they sort of brought out like this is what the last few hundred years of like statecraft have all been about. Like don't have dictators. Mm. It's bad. Um, they then pivoted a little bit and said, maybe you could do it with an other. Like if you had, you know, someone like Nina, but they just like building prosperous yeah. towns, like get get like a Sim City other. Yeah. And just like, yeah, like, you know there's potential for an other to, to maybe be a, a good authoritarian leader. Mm. Um, but in general, you can't trust a human with it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I like this. Um, I'm going to pull out one from Dancing Anatolia, which I really liked. Uh, the main point Dancing Anatolia talks about is the idea of needing federation, like needing small levels of government, which I think Bristow was okay with, but was still in charge, which is problematic. But Dancing <laughs> Anatolia also talks about how actually great the obligation for disaster relief is knowing how self-servic practitioners are. And it made me think of something in a different Waboo work, and I know it's a cardinal sin on this podcast to compare Wabo works, but I want to touch on this in Worm a little bit, right? Worm spoilers for I guess up to like Arc 8. Um where in Worm the villains help out with endbringer attacks and like really bad villains. Uh in exchange for you know leniency or, or a kind of leniency with respect to their criminal activity right and i think mm. this is a great system that while allowing people to be self-serving in a number of ways still at least implicitly if not explicitly requires you to come together when situations really demand and i think that's what the practitioner world needs right it needs a a more formalized way for that to happen because sure that happens informally in things like the blue Heron institute conflict right nicolette and zed and and mm. and some others all came together to 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 step into it but it was pulling teeth right you you really need a more formalized way for things like that to happen
0: yeah Yeah. i think we touched on something a little bit similar when we first talked about this like back when we pitched this discussion question which was the idea is like i like i fully agree this whole idea of the obligation to work on the disaster relief um makes sense and i think the argument i ended up falling on when we talked about it was just That should just be your job if you awake as a practitioner at all. Yeah. Like, if if you're going to take that ability to get more power or whatever, um, it should come with that responsibility by default. Like, it's weird to me that it's not built into the title.
1: You should have to have some sort of responsibility over the innocence that you, at some level, draw power from,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Um, Like, it it reminds me of... uh, Um, sorry, like, so Megafire7 wrote, like, a really detailed answer for this, and they talked about three major problems that they had with this idea, and the the last one is is sort of the segue I want to take, which is they they talked about, like, who decides, like, so the one issue with the disaster relief thing is, in Bristow's thing, it was sort of pitched, oh, a panel of experts will decide when one of these things is a disaster, Yeah. or um, the other thing as well is, like, you had to pay dues, which was like, contributing things like books or labor, And it was like, oh, it doesn't count if the book is, you know, redundant or if um, the labor, like, isn't good enough. And Megafire was like, can we get real specific information on, like, who is deciding this stuff? Because it's like, you know, know. if, if, like, Bristow unilaterally decides it, can he put his grudges in? Like, you know, like, you've always got to be aware of the human factor. Like, even if it's, like, a council, do their prejudices against certain people or practices mean that, you know, some people will find it harder to contribute than others. Yeah. 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 Um, Megafire also talked a lot about like, it, to bounce off the idea, like practitioner hierarchies, like the idea that some families are more powerful than others. And this system does nothing to mitigate that at all. Like the idea mm. that, you know, one of the things that was said is like, oh, you need to provide three weeks labor or you can have an apprentice do it. And it's sort of like, okay, so that gives people who already have apprentices a massive leg up. Yeah. Because, they're not dedicating a huge chunk of their time each year to like doing stuff for other people. They get, they still get all this time. Um, so it's like it, it, the prices are easier to pay for the already wealthier families in a way that just kind of is going to end up exacerbating the divides that already exist.
1: Yeah. It's already propagating these like privileged systems that are kind of the problem to begin with. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any other responses that you want to pull out that you really liked
0: uh i I liked the bisexual punch party uh did bring up one as well where they 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 obviously their focus was on how much they liked the idea of sharing resources and knowledge but they mm. hated the shitty leadership structure which you know we have talked about um but they are like you know the part that really stands out is the idea of sharing knowledge and resources and it was just like isn't that Ray's Athenian arrangement thing that he's trying to get off the ground like Mm. seems like that's what we need to be backing is basically creating networks that are very much just free for all like libraries basically mm. as a start mm. yeah <laughs> yeah
1: i mean like the first and most obvious problem with this is Bristow shouldn't be in charge of it <laughs> and that's always going to be the case
0: yeah, I think hey, it's the guy brought that up in their answer, right? They're like the fact that there's no way to replace leaders yes. or a suggestion of a su- succession plan it means it's just a huge can't problem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Um
1: Thanks everyone for leaving your answers to the discussion question. Uh we have a new discussion question.
0: Uh yes. So our new discussion question is what qualities do you think the new blue heron headmaster should have? Do you have a candidate in mind for the position? Yes. Um so the the order of those sort of two questions is important because I think I'm less interested in getting a hundred responses of Toad Swallow for Headmaster, because I know mm-hmm. that's coming. Yeah. But I want to know like why why you what you think makes someone a good fit.
1: Yeah. Now, if you can actually justify why Toad Swallow should be Headmaster, please do post because <laughs> I want to read that comment. Um, I also am interested to hear if anyone thinks that the current headmaster system is not right for BHI, what else could it be?
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, is, is a headmaster the wrong thing?
1: Yeah. Um, and that's the end of our episode. Is it, Elliot?
0: It is not. <gasps> uh, because, because we finally had a bit of extra time this time, I've managed to put together a monster corner. Hey. Uh, it's the return of a long-forgotten segment that we used to do more often that i always thought were fun.
1: All right. Well, let's play that classic intro. Teach me something about monsters.
0: Go uh it's been so long since i heard that um yeah so i wanted to do a quick monster corner on Hangmaidens, uh alexander's old buddies um so interestingly i think they seem to be like you know leaning on the side of the more original categories of monsters Mm. in the other verse like you know you get things like vampires have been mentioned and it's like okay like you know even if walbo's putting his own twists on things like vampires or fairy and goblins like you know there's a lot of foundational law that he's at least like pulled some origins from right um mm. even with his own stuff on top um hangmaidens seem a bit more original like i couldn't find any traditional monsters that were sort of like hangmaidens um the the document that he released uh like the hangmaidens pack dice doc gave a few other names they go by like they go by nos which is sort of latin for we slash us which i think works for their whole shtick of making people fall in love with them and the fact that there's like three sides to them um but yeah like you know there are other names as well like hunter spiders and trap Weavers, both of which also didn't seem to just map to existing monsters which i was Mm. very disappointed in Mm. uh, made my job harder um i did find another web serial that had a spider monster in it called a trap Weaver, Mm. um but i think that that's probably just a coincidence because like trap Weaver is but it's a name that makes sense for a spider monster. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I'm i
1: thinking of if there's anything that feels thematically like this, I'm thinking of things like, um, you know, being ensnared by a sexy spider lady, <laughs> you know, like I'm, yeah. I don't know why I'm trying, like I have that vision in my head of that being a thing that exists, but I can't actually point to an example of it from fiction beyond anything more than just like, you know, a siren song kind of deal.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like there's, you know, dozens of succubus like, yes, yes, um, uh, like mythological creatures from around the world. And I had the same thing. I was like, "Oh, the idea of a spider that lures you in like this." I guess it feels is just, like something I've seen before. It's just um, kind
1: of an extension of like a black widow spider kind of vibe.
0: Yeah, right. Um, yeah, but um, like, yeah, I, I couldn't find much. So the closest thing I ended up finding was uh one of the yokai uh which those of you who listen to deep impact will remember our old friends the yokai from many a monster mm-hmm. corner mm-hmm. um so there's one called the jorogumo um that basically it it has two forms like a giant spider form and a beautiful woman's form and yeah like you know sort of they they lived in waterfalls and there's you know a bunch of stories like oh they you know find a traveling man coming near the waterfall and they'd make him fall in love with them and then like sort of slowly drain the life from them and um they'd like go back to town but there'd be like a very thin spider web linking them back to the waterfall that would like pull them back that sort of thing it, it was quite hangmaiden-y. um so that's the, the closest i could find to something that like overlaps with this concept
1: mm, fair enough interesting um
0: yeah i i just as an aside i really like uh, so walbo especially in this doc really leans into the idea of how these uh the uh hangmaidens are like integrated to the three w- with like imagery of the three fates and mm. like, they've got the three forms obviously there's sort of a link being drawn between spiders silk and like you know the thread of fate um mm. it's sort of very fun how like uh even some of the variants outlined in the doc like the fisherwomen um play with these ideas of threads and fate in in cool ways go read the doc if you're interested in more is what i would suggest it's it's very fun mm yeah
1: definitely um probably have it linked in the show notes down below
0: i'll try but no promises <laughs> no promises feel free to feel free to write a comment in the in the yeah. reddit thread if i haven't put it anywhere and i'll i'll respond there
1: yes if if it isn't in the show notes down below you can leave your hate mail in the discussion thread which will be linked in the show notes down below uh, unless yep. wait that's a but then you can bypass the entire system hold on um <laughs> but yeah uh, leave your leave your uh hate hate comments for, for Elliot, or just your answer to the discussion question uh, about what qualities the new BHI Headmaster should have in that discussion thread, which will be linked down below.
0: Uh, yes, we're also available on Twitter, at MediaMD Podcast, or just search Power Reflections. Uh, live reads are back up and running, so, uh, you know, come come check it out. That's also where we post news about stuff, like, very soon, uh, the update for the Game Club will be getting posted there uh, with uh, our special guests, like uh, mixtape that she's putting yes. together for our queer games month
1: yes definitely um why not check out our website as well com. there's all kinds of great stuff on there uh not just links to when podcasts update but also there's sometimes articles and miscellaneous other little bits and pieces posted on there too um but there's also a whole bunch of awesome podcasts that you can find mm-hmm.
0: um yeah so the aforementioned game club just took place uh about a day ago when this is coming out Yep, Uh, that was on Barbari's is you, and Mm -hmm. and as I sort of mentioned, so we're heading towards a a very special Queer Games Month. Yes, Uh, so we've got our guest Elliot coming on, uh, and she's putting together a mixtape as well as uh, helping us play through Celeste, uh, so we can talk about that at the end of the month.
1: Yeah, Um, yes, that will be very fun. If you want to uh, level up your engagement with the game club, as it were, the best way to do that is become by becoming a Patreon, uh, a patron, sorry, because then you get access to the Doof Media Discord which allows you to uh, do all kinds of cool things, engage with the community while the game club's going on. Uh, a lot mm. of us do streams on the Discord and stuff <laughs> like that, so you can check out our streams as we go or stream it on Twitch sometimes as well. But best best way to be in the know is by getting on the Discord.
0: <laughs> yes, uh, and while you're on Patreon, don't forget to stop by patreon.com forward slash wildbow. Uh, you know, without, without him, we never would have seen Bristow and Alexander disappear Uh, so throw up some money if you can and support Walbo creating but then destroying terrible people yeah
1: exactly Um, and with that I think is the end of our show so we'll see you next time